0: hi and welcome back to foreign office i'm michael weiss director of special investigations at the free russia foundation and senior correspondent at yahoo news uh, this week i'm very pleased to announce that we are joined by a friend of mine and i think one of the finest diplomats i've ever um, talked to about not just ukraine but european security uh he is ambassador kaimo kusk he is uh, the estonian ambassador to ukraine Uh, for two more weeks, which uh, unfortunately Ukraine's loss is going to be Lithuania's gain because he's going to become Estonia's ambassador to Vilnius, where um, as of tomorrow, I'm recording this on July 10th, there's a huge NATO summit taking place at which a host of issues will be discussed, including Sweden's uh, somewhat... um, stalled membership to the alliance but not least of all uh, also ukraine's prospect for eventually joining nato um and so i thought who better to have on than the forthcoming estonian ambassador to lithuania uh we're going to talk about a host of issues but uh the first thing kaimo uh thank you for joining us i know you're joining us from Tallinn um before returning to kiev for the the final fortnight of your posting um you and i have talked for well i mean a, a few years now but We began talking very intensively, I think, in January of last year in the lead up to the war. Uh, And you were one of the few people, um, at least among Western statesmen and officials I queried at the time, who was actually quite optimistic and bullish on Ukraine's prospect for resistance. Uh, And you, you, you got into sort of the granular level of everything from how... Uh, Russia would fly sorties using fixed wing, but also uh, rotary wing aircraft and how they would fly low, allowing the Ukrainians to pick them off with uh, surface-to-air missile systems and man pads, things that had not really been incorporated all that well into much of the Western analytic communities thinking about how Ukraine might be able to fend off a conquest of Kiev. And I, I, I rate your judgment very, very highly. And right now, what I'm, I'm most keen uh, to hear from you is if you can give us a sort of tour the horizon of the ukrainian counteroffensive, um we're in one of these cyclical states where the western press is saying that this thing is either a failure or it's not going so swimmingly and it's certainly not going as quickly as everyone well i guess the pentagon would have liked it to uh it has ground to a halt it has quote stalled Give us the the lay of the land here and what you, uh, from your perch, I mean, typically in Kyiv, understand that perhaps, you know, the average reader of The New York Times may not about what Ukraine is trying to do.
1: First, thank you, Michael, for such an introduction. I'm humbled. Uh, hello to everybody. And uh, yeah, I'm currently in Tallinn for this week, uh, returning to Kyiv next week uh, for the final two weeks in, in my rotation there. Uh, yeah, well, uh, counteroffensive. Uh, it's uh, progressing, uh, not uh, with the speed uh, everybody hopes, Ukrainians included. Uh, but I think that's a smart way they are doing it. Uh, and while they're doing it uh, step by step, uh, half a kilometer per day. Some day maybe no uh, geographical gain, but the next day another uh, kilometer or a mile, is that they need to save uh, their soldiers' uh, lives. Uh, that's uh, the most important uh, resource, actually, for Ukrainian. It's, it's not ammunition, as uh, Sersky is saying, uh, us, the nordic Baltic uh, uh, diplomats, when we meet them. Uh, it's actually their soldiers and officers. Mm-hmm. They are saving them. And if they are progressing at the moment with a with a ratio of losing six to seven times less uh, men than the Russians, that's I think a good math in the war. Usually, you are calculating that offensive side losing three times more than defending side, and it's uh, putting even our defense forces analysts uh, amazed that how it is possible. Ukrainian doing it like that but that's the smart way of uh, of uh, fighting the war they are doing i mean the ukrainians at the moment and if uh, if if to take an math again i in secondary school i I went to the math special class so I like math uh, despite of uh, continued in university in humanitarian side if you are looking from the front line to the Berdyansk which is the Azov port it's 90 kilometers so if you are doing one kilometer per day at the end of august or in september you are actually at the sea of Ozo- Azov. and then september october and november what we saw last fall when uh, you can progress with uh, uh actually heavy armor uh as well so uh, i'm optimistic that uh that the Ukrainians are doing uh, good at the moment.
0: And I mean, what do you make of this? Uh, obviously, the Russians have had an a ample opportunity to dig in. We've, we've seen the the maps with lines of defenses, trenches, uh, dragon's teeth, landmines, all of these obstacles in place uh, that are going to slow, if not halt, Ukrainian progress. I mean, so th- those 90 kilometers might be all the difference, right? I mean, getting getting to that point is going to be the real trick here but we've also seen an absence of things on the ukrainian side right um the the deployment of heavy armor uh the the nine nato trained brigades are nowhere to be found yet as far as i can tell perhaps i'm i'm wrong about that but it seems like the ukrainians are are holding back a lot and still conducting these probing exercises and the economist uh my friend oliver carroll had a very good piece about that they're actually progressing on foot using combat engineers to try and find these, you know, the, the most amenable and vulnerable spots along the contact line from which to have their their breakthrough. Uh, but again, it's 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 tricky to get a sense of what's taking place when you're thousands of miles away and you're not a, a, at the front line. Op- morale seems to be very high, according to Western correspondents who embed with Ukrainian forces around Zaporizhia, etc. And they are kind of steadily chipping away, right? It's you know one one meter per or one hundred meters or a kilometer per day is still progress, even though it's it's slow going. And they also lack air superiority. I mean, you you make the very salient point, which I think goes unaddressed, that it's about manpower and saving lives rather than ammunition expenditures. But ammunition does seem to be an issue, at least according to U.S. estimates. This is the reason that that we're now providing cluster bombs, rather controversially, to the Ukrainian side. From your perspective, querying you know the general staff and your sources in Kyiv, do they feel that this is progressing along their timetable effectively, or are they self-critical about their own progress?
1: They are rather self uh, satisfied, actually, because to save lives. They are absolutely right. They are using and they are telling the list to us as well uh, uh, light units, mainly. Uh, but uh, there are some uh, armored uh, vehicles, infantry fighting vehicles, and those are the Western ones which are able to save lives. So instead of uh, those Soviet uh, uh, BMPs and PTRs, uh, which after being hit will take uh, with them the whole crew as well, the crew will be saved and is, has been actually. And that's, uh, that's boosting morale of the units as well. They see and they are ready to take uh, future more risk uh, going uh, forward. But at the moment, lighter the units. Uh, Yes, uh, they they need to invent something against helicopters, uh, again, because Russians are able to use LEM from some distance. So uh, if you have minefields, and that's mainly the headache is minefields, actually different layers of mines, uh, you need to yeah, break through of those without losses. So if you have minefields, well... Between you and the uh, enemy helicopters, it's not so easy to go uh, close with the man-pads. So uh, that's the trick. But I'm I'm pretty confident that Ukrainians are ready to crack it uh, through ammunition. Definitely, let's still Russians can use more. But uh, as Ukrainian officers are saying, one five five more precise, uh, more deadly, and at the end of uh, the war. Lisk uh, uh, NATO standard uh, is fulfilled. They have uh, turned uh, those uh, calibers, definitely.
0: How game-changing will cluster munitions sent by the United States be for clearing trenches and destroying Russian artillery and, and basically wreaking havoc on, on Russian defensive lines, right? I mean, there's, they're a force multiplier in one sense because the bomblets act as you know further munitions from one shell. Uh, but obviously this this is a bit of a scandal in the West because several countries have banned the use of these munitions from their own inventories the UK uh and Spain have come out critical of this U.S decision and it seems that the Biden administration reluctantly came to this decision uh, as a result of what they felt was a a severe shortfall in in ammunition I mean Biden himself told a reporter they run out of ammunition quite quickly do you think that cluster bombs are going to speed up the process uh, for the Ukrainians? Or are they going to use these munitions rather conservatively as part of their sort of testing or probing exercises?
1: No, Ukrainians have shown that they are using uh, weapons they have uh, rather responsibly, not using them against uh, civilians. And ones who are criticizing that... uh, um, I say they are lacking understanding what type of war it is, and it is war of uh, existence of one nation, the Ukrainian nation, existential war. The the, the people who are under occupation, <coughs> they are constantly killed. So you need to liberate it, and cluster munition is definitely one way to 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 go through those uh, defensive line, which. Uh, uh, which the name itself is falling again. Actually, it's it's not uh, that Russia is in defence; they have gained the territory, they are killing the civilians there on the occupation. So you need to kick them out. So uh, <coughs> to, you know, through those fortification lines, let's let's call them uh, like that. So it's uh, I think it's it's quite a good saying is that. Uh, that uh, understanding has gaps without experience. So being uh being, frontline, uh, uh, being a diplomat in Kiev, being under the uh, missile attacks and and the noisy nights of May and, and June when the, the air defense is working and taking it down. Uh, well, uh, I yeah sorry, but I haven't seen uh, those uh, critics before when Russia has used, and using cluster munition against uh, Ukraine, cities actually the, the towns which have been wiped out. Uh, sorry, we uh, will be happy to see quotes if there have been a weekly ones or at least once a month before, so lacking those.
0: Yeah, and Ukrainians love to point this out as well, you know, these, these newfound... Uh warriors of of human rights and civilian casualties didn't have anything to say about Rus- Russian use of cluster bombs for over a year uh, when they were being when they were raining down on civilian targets. Um, so yeah, that's that's certainly a, a key point. Uh, but you are a, a diplomat, and I want to turn a little bit more to the diplomatic sphere. So there's been interesting developments happening uh, on the margins, or I guess in anticipation of the Vilnius NATO summit. Uh, not least of all in Turkey. Uh, So President Zelensky went to Istanbul and met with Turkish President uh, Erdogan. And this was sort of a surprise to many people because several things were decided. Number one, Erdogan came out and said, Ukraine belongs in NATO, putting himself in a more pro-Ukrainian position with respect to that issue than the United States and Germany. Uh, Number two, Zelensky returned home to, not just by himself, but with a host of commanders from the Azovstal uh, metallurgic factory or, or facility, uh, one of the key, war, key battles of the war. Uh, these were Ukrainian POWs who were traded to Turkey and told by the Russian side that they had to stay in Turkey for the remainder of the war. And Erdogan basically said, thanks, but no thanks, violated an agreement with the Kremlin, sent them home to a hero's welcome in Lviv. Uh, And three, uh, there are all sorts of other interesting arms deals being discussed or, you know, military technological agreements between Ankara and Kyiv. Turkey's role in this war has been fascinating to watch for several reasons because Erdogan is seen as being very like-minded with Putin in terms of his understanding of the West, his criticism of the West, particularly the United States. But then again, Turkey and Russia have historical rivalries. Um, Turkey has a very vested interest in the Black Sea region. And Turkey has been sending kit to Ukraine, um, you know, cluster bombs. To come back to our previous discussion, they were the first to send cluster bombs to Ukraine. And they did this kind of under the radar with no fanfare. Um what do you see happening here? Uh, Turkey is sort of the redheaded stepchild of NATO, at least if you open up any American newspaper, because Erdogan is seen as a strong man who has eroded civil liberties and human rights in in Turkey, kind of runs his own show and and goes off script from the the alliance in general. Um, But he seems to be very bullish about Ukraine, whilst also walking this fine line with Putin, so as not to antagonize or alienate Russia. I mean, Putin is due in Turkey next month, and w- probably the the, the only, quote-unquote, Western visit he is capable of making will be to Turkey, a NATO uh, ally. And now, of course, Turkey changing the rules of the game, or perhaps moving the goalposts, if you prefer that metaphor, with respect to Sweden's uh, entry into NATO, Erdogan saying, uh, in order for, for Ankara to get to yes on this question, uh, the EU track for Turkish uh, accession must advance. And that's been something that's over 10 years with no real development. I mean, give us your kind of broad understanding of, of how you see this very interesting
1: diplomatic development. First of all, Turkey is uh, our very valuable uh, NATO ally for Estonia, definitely and ally in a region, in a very, very complicated uh, region. Turkey is definitely the the, the state uh, is a state which uh, which uh, values the, the agreements international law and agreements and they have been uh, now during this large scale war in several times tied with agreement with moscow uh, Let's let's talk about uh, grain deal, for example. It's not uh, between Moscow and Kyiv. It's Moscow, Ankara, and uh, United Nations. And uh, if we already talk about this example, Russia has violated it, although seemingly uh, like uh, well being in a treaty, prolonging it last time in May for two months, but in reality. Russian inspectors, who supposed to inspect grain ships uh, going out of uh, Black Sea Ukrainian ports, they uh, mildly said not uh, well doing their job very quickly, uh, if at all. So this deal during the last two months has has been halted, although officially prolonged. So. Uh, Ukrainian grain export uh, during the last two months have been worse since uh, last August when the deal was uh, settled. So, if I'm looking the the scene at the moment, then I can definitely understand uh, Erdogan's logic uh, to show Moscow that he can be flexible with agreements as well, so giving hours uh, uh, of five uh, along uh, with uh, Zelensky, who has visited him. Uh, once again, uh, Turkey as an ally in NATO can also understand uh, that uh, the Ukraine joining NATO will make NATO stronger and will create uh, for Turkey an additional layer between the uh, imperialistic uh, Russia with whom Turkey has had uh, centuries uh, problems. And they are they are definitely not interested in letting uh, Black Sea become a playground for for Russia. And if you don't have independent uh, Ukraine, if you don't have Crimea uh, as part of Ukraine, uh, this will be uh, more or less playground for for Russia. So, so for me, those those steps. Uh, I couldn't have predicted them, uh, but uh, for me, they seem logic, uh, logical, actually.
0: Well, so now now we come to the, the NATO summit that's happening tomorrow through Wednesday, um, and there seems to be daylight uh, between and amongst certain allies. Um, President Biden has said, uh, we're not going to announce any sort of concrete timetable for Ukraine's membership. They're not ready. "Quote unquote," I think he said this in in an interview with um, Farid Zakaria of CNN. Um, I know that the Baltic states, uh, your country, Estonia, have been very, very uh, eager to see an advancement of Ukraine's position with respect to NATO. Uh, today, uh, Ukrainian Foreign Minister uh, Dmytro Kuleba tweeted that the, um, the 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 former roadmap, I think that had been announced at Bucharest a, a decade or more ago, is uh, now been Put to one side uh, by consensus among all 31 NATO allies, uh, and, and and this will have an effect in shortening and also making clearer, pending whatever results and is announced uh, on Wednesday in Vilnius, the the pathway for for NATO, uh, Ukraine's ultimate um, accession. The argument I hear from in in Kyiv all the time, and you've heard it. I mean, it's 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 everywhere. Is that look in. The space of a year and change, Ukraine has done single-handedly what NATO was founded to do collectively in 1949, right? Uh, Which is fend off conquering Russian army and also stop Moscow from superimposing its will and hegemony on Europe. Uh, Now, they've done this in concert with a great deal of security assistance, especially from NATO, uh, but they—you know—the the ones fighting the war are Ukrainian soldiers. So it is—it is, it is fair to say they have done it single-handedly. Where do you see Ukraine's future with respect to NATO? Uh, do they belong in this the alliance? I'd imagine you would say yes to this, but I, I'm also keen to get your sense of of the timing. And you know, what do you expect to see as a result of this summit? What what, what can we expect? As an announcement um, that will be arrived at consensually among all allies.
1: Uh, I agree. Uh, you, are, you are reading us Baltics and Estonians very well. Actually, we will say yes to uh, Ukrainian NATO membership, and the logic is that uh, the gray zones should uh, be uh, should be gone from uh, Europe security field. Uh, call it uh, neutrality, uh, non-alliance or something, like that. those territories are hanging in the air and uh, sooner or later we'll uh, call for another clash uh, between the Russian Empire uh, and this, this nation or the group of nations then. So uh, uh, we need to get... Uh, Get those gray zones actually uh, erased from a map uh, by taking democratic nations in, and and Ukraine is progressing really, really well in the in the battlefield, uh, taking over the standards, uh, pushing the reforms as well. The, I've seen. I've looked at uh, at the war as a catalyst. Uh, so it's it's. Uh, Putting the things happening uh, much more quicker, uh, already since 2014, uh, and then the large scale war, despite all the uh, all the vulnerabilities and all the, the 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 challenges they have, they have pushed forward with their uh, their reforms and catching the uh, corrupt guys and and, and showing the. How the toxic uh, oligarchs uh, are uh, are actually trying to uh, poison the, the Ukraine, even from abroad, actually. So, uh, what we are expecting? Uh, Ukraine expect uh, definitely uh, immediate uh, invitation, uh, saying that they can understand that uh, membership. Uh, is not uh, possible during the large-scale war. We rather try to avoid uh, also uh, uh, like uh, circumstances which uh, which should uh, be met for Ukrainian membership. Because if we are we are drawing a table with uh, with the boxes and and then start to tick the boxes, then uh, the Russians will do every everything to to get. Table and then, uh, well, work as hell to avoid this last or second to last box uh, being not ticked. Actually, so, so uh, we need to go forward from the Bucharest uh, promises. The uh, goal that Ukraine one day will be NATO member, yes. Uh, Let's uh, let's we 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 all, all agreed. Uh, you 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 mentioned U.S. Uh, Germany, uh, Turkey, whoever uh, had nodded to that. Uh, so now now what will be the uh, the bath to that and uh, take, taking away the the map, uh, which is the membership action plan. Nobody asked it uh, from Finland and Sweden. Okay, we can say that they have worked uh, uh, for years to to meet the NATO standards. Uh, So in uh, Ukraine, large-scale war every month is like a year. So uh, I can confirm it. Uh, So the last year and a half have been uh, uh, like three for a normal uh, diplomatic career, maybe five.
0: But in terms of the more legalistic considerations, you know, that one of the guidelines for membership is you have to have friendly relations with the neighbors, um, which is unimaginable so long as a sovereign independent Ukraine exists, that it's going to have friendly relations with at least Russia under Putin and probably for the foreseeable future. But also, even more specifically, um, you cannot be a member of NATO with parts of your territory under occupation. I mean, the euphemistic way of describing it is contested. I would say that's a little too euphemistic. It's it's occupation. So presumably, in order to speed this process along, Ukraine will have to liberate all of its 1991 borders, including Crimea. And this is where we get into more of the kind of thicket of debate uh, among and between NATO allies uh, in the U.S., uh, it is a, a rhetorical flourish that you know Crimea is Ukraine uh, a rhetorical flourish grounded in international law and in in what the UN recognizes to be the state of Ukraine however dot 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 there are stakeholders and policymakers who are to put it mildly skeptical that Ukraine can retake Crimea much less all of occupied Donbass. Where does this put us in terms of this kind of dialectic here? On the one hand, we want Ukraine in NATO, or we all agree that it belongs in NATO. On the other hand, in order to get to NATO, Ukraine has to do things that a lot of NATO allies are pessimistic it can do and are perhaps also unwilling to help it to do. And here we get into the question of F-16 fighter jets and what... uh, Defense Minister Reznikov told me was uh, what he envisages as a coalition of jets similar to the tank coalition that was put together several months ago. Here we get into long range munitions, uh, attackums. Um you know we've seen the Brits provide Storm Shadows cruise missiles which can target any Russian position but there's a host of things that seem to need to happen before Ukraine can become a member of NATO, uh and and to put it very broadly and generally, it has to defeat, strategically defeat Russia in this war and drive all of Russian occupiers back into their native country. Am I wrong about that, or can there be some kind of carve out or dispensation?
1: Uh, we can definitely argue with those uh, preconditions uh, about this. Let's say, uh, let's let's uh, take this uh, friendly relations with your neighbors uh, and. Uh, Germany is a very good example. Western West uh, Germany uh, and Western Berlin uh, didn't have friendly neighbors at all when they joined when they were taken into NATO. So I think that's the that's the best example that everything is possible uh, if there's a political uh, will and there's a courage to uh, stand for values we in the West. Share. Uh, that's what the, the Ukraine is fighting. Our own Estonia don't have a border treaty. And I would not call our big neighbor Russia with a small R. <laughs> and a friendly neighbor, actually. Never from from the beginning of the... Uh, of uh, the '90s, when we got our independence, back like, immediately, the Yeltsin, who used democracy only when it was useful for him, he was imperialist uh, by his nature as well. Actually, trying to 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 pressure us uh, back to join them. Uh, okay, their uh, military were in mess those days, and uh, we had a window window of opportunity, but we don't have. A border treaty uh, with, with with Russia at the moment. So, um well, everything is. Uh, is they, they they
0: can choose to redefine the border as as they see fit. But but you do have NATO membership, which means, you know, thirty countries and per- perhaps thirty one if Sweden joins will come to your collective defense um, in in the event of a Russian invasion. Yeah.
1: That will well, that will work, and if we are we are putting a precondition that uh, Ukraine should have uh, get their, let, they want they want to get all those territory back, but but if they have ten square kilometers more, will it valid as well, or we are going with a centimeter and trying to measure the territory? So it's uh, I think uh, it's more but NATO is definitely more about political. And will and political might than it is European Union. There are more standard, standardized Brussels, master of bureaucracy. Uh, well, those organizations uh, are different, although what I've said also uh, in uh, several times is that uh, during the last uh, year and a half uh, during the full scale war in Europe, those two organizations uh, international organizations have been functioned and uh, fulfilled uh, their core tasks, uh, not ta- not any other international organization. well, I,
0: the other thing I want to ask you, Kaimo, is you know one of the light motifs of this war, and you know you said that every month is like a year on the battlefield, and every month has been like a year in terms of um testing conventional wisdom or received myths about Russia. I mean, just in the last few weeks, we saw a Russian oligarch high on his own supply with a private, not so private army, really, uh, mount, whatever you want to call this, a mutiny. I would consider it more like a putsch, and we still don't know really the internal dynamics at play here, which just it's, continues to be reported. Getting within about 100 miles of Moscow where had he penetrated the city limits, there would have been bloodshed on the streets unseen in probably since 1917, at this rate. Um, Russia looks a lot weaker than A, Russia would like us to believe it is, and has spent decades trying to convince us it is. And B, uh, it looks a lot weaker also than how a lot of Western analysts and policymakers and politicians have understood it to be. I mean, it is clearly it is a, a nuclear power. It has used the threat of deploying nuclear weapons since the start of this invasion. Although you notice the chatter and the narrative about World War III seems to have diminished, not least because the Chinese have prevailed upon Putin not to do something as catastrophic as use WMD. Um, But recently, you know, we had the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant issue where Ukrainian military intelligence was saying the Russians are planning to do something untoward, similar to the Kakovka dam explosion. That chatter seems to now have diminished too, and we don't know what's taken place behind the scenes, what kind of communication, particularly between Washington and Moscow. But I want to ask you this broadly. Putin seems very vulnerable and very weak and like somebody who continues to I mean, it's it's not the boy who cried wolf necessarily, but it is the the dog whose bark is not even louder than its bite anymore. The, the the bark itself is 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 lowering in volume, right? I mean, a guy tries to overthrow your government, or at least seizes an entire military base and shoots down half a dozen helicopters and kills, you know, dozens of of Russian servicemen. And then you parlay with him in Moscow about the future of his mercenary group. You give him back his guns and his money, and you give him a, a a rather cushy exile in Minsk. This is not a regime that seems coup-proof. This is not a regime that seems to be founded on concrete, but rather on quicksand. Am I reading it wrong? And should should that reading, assuming you agree with my analysis, have anything to do with this kind of political will and boldness that you alluded to earlier in terms of what the West ought to be doing now,
1: while Putin and the Russians are on the back foot, the biggest uh, thing uh, I found from this uh, mid-summer uh, weekend uh, uh, was passivity of Russian population. The Russian leadership has trained, shaped, uh, call it uh, however during the last two, maybe three decades, population to be passive. So that they don't believe something concrete, but they don't believe anything, actually. So certainly the, the passivity they have trained was also towards Putin. No one went... To protect Putin, no one didn't die for Putin, uh, and uh, they are not very eager to die in Ukraine as well as we have seen. Uh, They're not there's uh, not so big masses uh, volunteering to go on the front line. But uh, but we have we have looked the Levada Center uh, populace, uh, popularity polls and and reading. Hey, Putin's popularity is still around eighty. Well, dropping now five points, and we are thinking it's already a significant drop, but then rising again in a critical moment, they are passive. They are passive, and that should be frightening uh, for the leadership uh, in Russia as well. Or uh, they need now to use their political technologies to to find the way how to survive in that passivity actually when you have forces which uh, which are rising actually in uh, in in Russia looking after power so the passivity keyword for me from that weekend is the passivity all uh, overwhelming passivity actually
0: and this is something that that has a direct bearing on the course of the war because i remember Timothy Snyder, you know, the Yale historian, brilliant historian of, of Europe, post-war Europe in particular, wrote an essay months and months ago about um, the sort of virtual reality of contemporary Russia, where it's, it's sort of engineered like a television program. When the program is over, you change the channel or you, you introduce new viewing options. And Snyder's point was, if Putin decided tomorrow, he wants to end the war. He can pull every last Russian soldier out of Ukraine and then basically change the channel and sell to his population. This was a great victory. We fended off NATO. We have secured our borders. We are fortress Russia, you know, have military parades and and Z pageantry all over the country. And, you know, a lot of people will look at him like he's completely full of shit and that this was a humiliation, but they'll shrug their shoulders and get on with life anyway. And I, I put this to your prime minister, Kaya Callis, uh, in Tallinn one year ago, almost to the day. She completely agreed with Professor Snyder's assessment. And the specificity that you allude to, I mean, it doesn't get more of a, a, a you know, it talk, talk about a probing exercise, right? It, there's no more of a greater test to a nation's social and political cohesion than an attempted coup, which gets very close to succeeding. And everyone's sort of like, we don't care, Prigozhin, Putin, Patrushev, whomever, we'll just get on with our life. This shows that the west can continue to push and push and push and push and and then provide Putin his sort of his golden bridge as you you might call it where look man you can you can stay in power and you can convince your own people that you've succeeded. We don't care how you dress it up. Just get the hell out of Ukraine because we're going to make life miserable for you in Ukraine and we're going to get to such a point where the next Prigozhin who comes along might actually succeed in his endeavor, right?
1: I absolutely. agree. I have uh, read that. And uh, this weekend, uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago was uh, excellent uh, proof that so it is actually late. Like, like, we, we don't need to worry. And I'm, I'm not worrying about the face staving of the, of the mass uh, murderer. Uh, I mean, Putin. so, uh, he didn't. Uh, he don't need uh, face saving. He's is uh, sending one face to uh, some very to kiss the masses, and the other face is, is meeting the well the the close uh, close team, so to say. Team, Yeah, team is uh, too uh, honorable word for for less 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 bunch of people uh, in Moscow, but they. Uh, yeah, lay lay shape the reality until uh, this reality will be taken away from Lem actually.
0: Well, Kaimo, um, we're creeping up on our, our agreed upon hour. And I know you're a very busy man and you have to prepare for your, um, I guess, valedictory trip to Ukraine. Uh, it's hard to imagine Kyiv without you because you're the first person I call when I come to visit. Uh, and I, I have profited enormously from your counsel. And I hope people who listen to this show uh, will do the same. And once you're um, set up and comfortable in Vilnius, let's have you back on to discuss, I don't know, the future of of, of Baltic geopolitics.
1: <laughs> well, we, have, uh, we have Koenigsberg Bergler, actually, uh, which uh, yeah. will be definitely an issue to solve if uh, Russia decides that it will break uh, into uh, pieces and uh, we never know what can happen. Plus, uh, 30 kilometers from Vilnius, there's Russia. Yep. Uh, and uh, all what is happening in Russia at the moment uh, will shape uh, the Belarussia as well, because uh, technically it's not independent territory at the moment. Uh, yeah. so, uh,
0: well, we can do it. We, I mean, I, we have done episodes about Belarus and Lukashenko, and I know uh, Estonia was very forward-footed on the crisis in Belarus even before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine when everybody was sort of saying, what is this country called Belarus? And people were completely absented from it. And now it looks to be very critical in not, not necessarily the survival of Russia, but in terms of European security architecture given where Prigozhin and his mercenary corps are are meant to wind up anyway. Um, Anyway, uh, Kaimo, always a pleasure. Uh, You've been listening to Foreign Office. My guest this week is Ambassador Kaimo Kusk. He's the Estonian ambassador to Ukraine and soon to be the Estonia's ambassador to Lithuania. Uh, I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and Senior Correspondent at Yahoo
1: News. And we will see you next week. Thank you very much.